So this morning, uh, if you missed our Sunday school, I invite you back next week. Um, uh, Dr. Carver took a little break. He is, by the way, a uh, him and Lori, brand new grandparents. Praise God. That's awesome. And uh, I know they're probably watching online, so congratulations to you guys. And uh, so it needed a break. He had some other things. Obviously, Lori had a procedure on Friday, and so he's helping take care of her as well. Uh, but uh, I'm sending notice, Dr. Carver, if you're watching. I'm preempting your Sunday school because I didn't get finished this week. So next week, uh, take another break, brother. Go see that grandbaby uh, or bring that grandbaby here whenever. So, uh, But anyways, we'd love for you to come be a part of the Sunday school. We are looking at uh, this morning in our Sunday school class, and it ties in with what we've been talking about here uh, since last week. Uh, social justice versus biblical justice. And um, there's more to it than, than what you're getting on the 6 o'clock news. Okay? Uh, I promise you there's a lot more to it than what you're getting in your universities and your school systems. Um, but we need to understand this stuff biblically and the biblical worldview uh, and how we're to see and approach this is what we need. Um, I'm not a fan and, and never have been a fan of what we call. Uh, news time prophecy, if you will, uh, where we take current events and then try to scramble to the scriptures to figure it out. I, I believe if we just systematically study the word of God, that if we'll actually follow, trust, and obey, thus saith the Lord, if we will hide the word of God in our heart, we'll learn not to sin against him. So as a church, our responsibility is to feed the sheep. Not the latest headlines, not the latest topics of discussion around the water cooler. Our responsibility as pastors is to feed the sheep, the Word of God. But here's what I know to be true. God's Word is true. And everything you and I need for life and godliness is in the Word of God. So if you and I would just begin to grow in the Word of God, we will be able to handle the issues of life that come our way standing on the promises of God, right? So we're going to do that next week. Uh, we're, we impact a lot of terms this week in Sunday school on social justice, what it means, the difference between equality and equity. And, and uh, anyway, we'll, we'll recap some of that, but we're going to get into next week biblically. I'm going to give you seven principles. How, to then, how then shall we live, to quote Francis Shaver? How then shall we live in light of the situation of the days around us? And uh, we're going to be looking at that. So if you miss it, don't worry about it. Come back in. Uh, our teacher is Bodie Bauckham, one of the best. Uh, we'll finish out his section, and then we'll uh, do some discussion time. So I'd love for you to be a part of that. Take your Bibles. Let's go to um, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, I just need to say this as a caveat. This is really cool. Last week, um, I sat in on Dr. Carver's Sunday school class. I don't always get a chance to do that. Um, and I popped in last week, and man, a lot of the stuff he was hitting on was exactly what was in last week's sermon. It was like, dude, that's awesome. Well, then after church, uh, Pastor Mark says, dude, you got to ask your kids what we talked about in Sunday school today. And unbeknownst to me, because we don't sit and study together and share notebooks in, in, in the office during the week, but Pastor Mark and the teens were on the same two passages of Scripture that we were teaching from the pulpit last week. Guys, those are God moments. The Spirit of God is at work in our midst. And it's not just here, because when I hear other pastors, when I see things that are happening in, in the overall uh, Christian uh, body, the, the body of Christ, 
these are similar things that, that we're being reminded of by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Uh, so let's take courage this morning and knowing that uh, the Word of God and the Spirit of God are at work, and we trust that God will have preeminence here today. Notice, if you would, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then also, we'll draw our attention back over to, let's go to 1 Peter. Actually, let's go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. And look in chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, and no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask that you would please bless the reading of your word and the teaching of your word today. Lord, I pray that I would be simply a vessel, remove myself, Lord, let me decrease in hopes that you would increase and that you would use me to speak as the oracles of God today. In other words, Lord, I would share your truth and I would share your truth rightly and that the hearer and the listener would receive that truth and the result would be fruit. And we will praise you, Lord, because you alone are worthy and you alone can. In Jesus' name, amen. So. Uh, this is the second part. There's probably going to be at least a third part. Maybe a fourth part. I don't know. We'll see. God bless you. Again, uh, this is a uh, study of uh, Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Um, and it, it, it's just some great resource on why we believe that this book is truly the Word of God. I mean, it's one thing to say it, right? But you know, the, the, the battle is real in the world out there. It's not enough to, to, to raise your children, your grandchildren, and, and well, oh, well, bless God, you just believe it because God said it, just bless God, believe it. You know, because some of us were raised that way, weren't we? I mean, you know, it's just, just that's, that's it. Now, the reality is, 
There's some truth in that. There's some real truth in that. Doesn't matter whether I believe it or you believe it. If God said it, it is true. Because God, by definition, is truth. We talked about last week. Everyone comes to the discussion with what we call a presupposition. In other words, either I come to this argument, this discussion, this debate, with a preconceived idea. Either I believe it's true or I don't believe it's true. I, I, I put my faith in something. Humanism, wisdom, philosophy, science, whatever. We all have a worldview, the way we see the world. And the way we see the world is informed by what? For some, it's their culture. For some, it, it, it's, it's the media. Oh, my, please don't shape your worldview by the media, man. It is, oh. But yet, we get our thoughts, we get our view of how we think things are from somewhere. You need to examine your source. Because at the end of, this, at the, end of the day, this is what it's truly about. The very beginning of time, the argument was, did God really say? Satan, from the very start of time, if this book is true, from the very beginning of time, put the seed of doubt into the heart and mind of man. And he's still putting the seed of doubt in the heart and mind of man. Not just on a, an overview of, of how we see the world, but sometimes even under the umbrella of Christianity, we sometimes have those seeds of doubt fed to us which is why the whole New Testament is full of warnings about being aware of ideologies that try to make their way in to influence us, to get us to think differently, to depart from the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. This is why Jude was starting to write and said, oh, you know what, I need to change this writing because there's some things that I really need to address. Earnestly contend for the faith. And the faith has always been under attack since the beginning of time. The Word of God was what was attacked in the beginning. It's what's being attacked today. The authority of God is what is always under attack. So what makes you believe that the Scriptures are inspired? We talked about last week, inspiration. Again, this term here, we looked in this passage, it means God breathed. God breathed this word. This is the living word. This is the very breath of God. This is the very life of God. It's without error. It's infallible. So what makes you believe the scriptures are inspired? We're going to uh, look at proving inspiration. By the way, remember, we talked about general revelation. is one way God has made himself known. God is not wanting to hide from you. He's made himself known and his attributes are clearly seen. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. You can look around and see the stars, you see the trees, you see the flowers, you see creation. He is testifying. The, the stars, the universe, it screams to his existence. General revelation makes it known that there is a God. Special revelation is how God has made himself known. We would not know anything about God, who he is, apart from the word of God. A apart from this Bible you hold. You wouldn't know anything about who God is in His character and His attributes, right? So again, what separates this book from other holy writing books, right? Because there's other books that claim to be holy. Again, these are, these are things that, that should be weighed. They should be examined. But they should be weighed and they should be examined from a foundational worldview. A biblical worldview. Because if you try to come in the other way, you're going to be 
again, influenced by seeds of doubt. This is the tactic of the enemy. He wants to feed you ideologies. We're not afraid of ideologies, but we operate from a foundation that's firm, that's greater than me, that's greater than you. Thus saith the Lord. Because again, this is the cosmic battle that's always happened. This is why, again, and I say it over and over again, but I have to say it over and over again because I really pray that it gets into your heart so that you understand this truth, that I had to come to understand this truth because I didn't understand this truth for a long time in my walk. Even as a young Christian, I didn't understand this until the light came on because, by the way, you don't see if the light's off. When does the light come on? When the light comes on. And the light came on. And I began to see. This is why I'm a presuppositionalist, apologist. A presuppositionalist says, I start from not proving the existence of God. I start with God exists. That's exactly the way the Bible reads. That's exactly how God argues his existence. God doesn't argue his existence because he knows you already know he exists. And he already knows that you suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That's why you don't see things the way God wants you to see in your natural state because you can't. The natural man doesn't, dis doesn't discern the things of the Spirit. He can't. They're spiritual in nature. So unless God opened your eyes to see it, you'll never see it. So I'm not mad at people who don't see it. My heart breaks and bleeds, but I want to plead and I want to reason and I want to say, but I can't. I'm incapable. But God is able. God is able. And that's why I need to use his resources. And that's why you need to use his resources as believers, as followers of Christ. Because there's a lost and dying world out there that needs to hear and know the truth. And for those of us in the camp, we need to protect ourselves. We need to recognize the tactics of the enemy. We need to suit up in the whole armor of God. We need to know the scriptures and understand that it's through the scriptures we will see reality. Not the illusion the world and the devil wants you to see. God bless. Proving inspiration. Here's some questions we want, to, we want to try and answer. How does the Bible authenticate itself? Good question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I got one participant today. Thank you. Uh, here's the other one. No need to participate at this point. What evidence is there that the Bible is inspired? What, I, what evidence is there? All right, that's fine, preacher. You can spout that stuff, but so what? What evidence is there? Right? Because, see, I, and I get this, our children are growing up in a scientific age, right? I mean, let's think for a minute. If, if you can't see it, smell it, touch it, taste it, right, most people aren't going to believe it. Well, science has taken the foundation that God's Word once held in our culture. Now, it's a false foundation. It's a, it's a sandy foundation. I'm not against science. Real science. Real science comes from a biblical worldview. Okay? Real science comes from a biblical worldview. How much has science changed through the years? How much will science change in the next coming years? I mean, the last thing I heard that the, uh, you, you know, we're only going to be in this shutdown for two weeks, science said, right? How'd that work out for you? Oh, you only have to wear these masks for a little while, said science. Again, I'm not against science. I'm for science. But I'm for honest biblical science. Not man-centered, man-wisdom science. So, again, what's your foundation? Where are you coming from in this worldview? Third thing we're going to try to look at, is there any evidence for the historicity of the Bible outside of Scripture? Again, it's circular reasoning. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Oh, yes, I can. You use it for everything else you believe. Everybody reasons circularly. 
if you believe science, you're going to use science to believe to prove science. If you, if you believe philosophy, then you're going to use philosophy to prove philosophy. So don't tell me I can't use Bible to prove Bible. That's what everybody does when they're, when they're making an argument for an authoritative base. They're all doing the same thing. Don't let them count you out with the same rules of the game. That's cheating. So we're going to use it. But, but again, we don't need to be ashamed of this. This is, thus saith the Lord. Can you imagine if Eve would have stood up and said, when, oh, did, did, did God, God surely didn't mean you would die when you eat. He, he didn't mean that. He knew that when you did this, your eyes would be up, blah, blah, blah. You know? And so he whispers those things. Imagine what if she would have said, get thee behind me, Satan. Or, or what if she would have said, you know what, I hear you, but I'm going to stick with what God has said. I'm going to believe him. Right? By the way, do you know a real simple rule of thumb that we can often do? And we use this in counseling a lot of time, my, my wife, when we're dealing with folks. You know the, the, the battlefield is in your mind. Right? That's where it always takes place. Think about it. You walk into church, you're a visitor for the first time. Everybody's staring at me. I don't fit in here. <laughs> oh, I think they're talking about me. I wonder if they know. I mean, you know, we get these like, thoughts in our mind, right? They're, they're lies. Satan will give us all kinds of lies to believe. The battlefield's in your mind. In counseling, we'll often say this. This is a great little litmus test to take home with you. Ask yourself this question. Would God whisper that? Would God whisper that? Would the Holy Spirit whisper that? That'll, I'm telling you, if you just keep that little phrase going in your heart and mind, it'll eliminate a lot, a lot of lies from the enemy. Mark Barnett, heck boy, looked at me today. I think he's mad at me. He don't like me no more. Would the Spirit of God say that? <laughs> Probably not. Anyway, again, we know the enemy is real and the battlefield is in our mind. And that's why the answer in the Word of God here again, oh, there that preacher goes again, using the Word of God to actually reason through these things. The Word of God, that foundational argument says this, therefore, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Barnett's not my enemy. That lie that got whispered to me is the enemy. Therefore, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Therefore, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, how am I going to bring that thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Well, Christ said, love thinks no wrong. There's one. So I'm not going to think that about Barnett until he and I have a personal conversation one-on-one. -on -one. I get to know how he feels about it. And if he tells me, yeah, dude, I just don't like the way you look at me. You're ugly. Well, now the truth is out, right? Well, y'all knew that anyway. I was, anyway, I've been told I have a face for radio, brother. So some of y'all get that joke on the way home. <laughs> Here's the questions. Proving inspiration because we don't want to fall prey to the lies. We want to believe the truth. And God's word is truth. So let's look at it. Evidence is for the Bible's inspiration. We're going to look at self-attestation. Uh, um, we're going to look at uniqueness. Uh, we're going to look at how it's uh, historicity, it's prophetic element, uh, testimony of Christ, and we're going to look at some life-changing ability. This is what is, again, found in the Word of God. Um, these are the things that we're going to try to unpack uh, so you can see why this <laughs> won't get done today. All right, 
Well, we'll continue forward. Um, so let's take a look. Uh, by the way, testimony of the Holy Spirit uh, is uh, the other one that we'll, we'll also tackle. So uh, let's look at this. Proving inspiration. So the scriptures claim inspiration in many places and different ways. We've looked at these two passages already. The passages we opened in reading. But think about throughout the scriptures, there's a phrase used often, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. God's word claims to be just that. God's word. And as we look at some of these questions, you're going to have to have an intellectual honesty conversation in your own heart and mind. You're going to have, this, you're going to have to weigh this as to whether or not these claims are true or these claims are false. Just like in the, in the beginning of time... Did God really say, or did God say? Our life's about discernment. And I really believe that most of the problem in the church today is we've gone well past the line of discernment. I, I think most Christians, uh, we, we are not discerning people anymore. We used to be a household of discernment because we operated with a biblical worldview. We thought from Scripture to the world. But because we're ignorant of the Word of God, we don't hide the Word of God in our heart. We hide everything else in our head and heart except for the Word of God, we're unable to discern. Because, by the way, uh, the Word of God, again, tells me this. Let's see if I can actually remember the passage. Uh, let's look in 1 John. And let's look in chapter 4 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, and notice what it says here in, in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So again, would God say this? Would the, would, 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 you know, is, this, is this the Holy Spirit talking? Would He say that? Is, test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, how are we going to know this? How are we going to be able to test these things? Well, he gives us the answer. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world. It sounds like the world, guys, is probably of the world. And the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do we know the spirit of truth and error? How are we to discern the, the, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error? By the word of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they what? They follow me. The word of God is the voice we should be listening to. You want to know the difference between truth and error? It's going to be through the Word of God. 
attests to itself throughout scriptures. We could spend the rest of the year unpacking these types of passages. The Westminster Confession of Faith in 1647 had this to say about the authority of the Holy Scripture. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. The author thereof, and therefore, it is to be received, because it is the Word of God. God doesn't need you to believe it. God doesn't care if you reject it or receive it. I mean, He does in the sense of He's not willing any should perish, but all would come to repentance. But His truth, His existence, isn't dependent upon you testifying to it. Or me. What was C.S. Lewis said? Truth doesn't need to be defended, right? It's like a lion. You just open the cage and let him out. Eric reminded me of that last week. Wow, there it went. Just let it out, brother. <laughs> That's something more like a panther. Now let's, yeah, let's hope they get, they get a good roar today. We'll see. But again, God's Word is just that. It's God's Word. And we would do wise to obey it. You know why I know we're, we're depraved and we're fallen? Because even as believers, we struggle with obeying the Word of God. We still try to find mm, ways around things, right? We, we, we try to find things that fit us. This is why we're warned that in latter days, people will set up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. There's a reason why Joel Osteen's church is packed. Well, just because I'm good looking and smile and blink a lot. I mean, he's peddling a lie. But people want their ears tickled, you know? There's a reason why our IFBs are shouting and running and preaching and running and out and shooting, woo, and they get on politics every week, and women, don't you wear them pants and, and the King James only, and they shout. Guys, you know what they're doing? They got their amen corner. They're tickling their ears. I said it. I said it out loud right there in its own tape. Guys, there's a problem in our churches. There's a problem, and it's because we're not hearing the Word of God. We're not obeying the Word of God. And the sad thing is we're perverting the Word of God in some of these teachings that swing the pendulum from side to side. And so a healthy biblical balance is what we need, and you and I are responsible for our own intake of food. Pastor Jeremy can't spoon-feed you every week. If that's what you're depending upon, you will be an unhealthy child of God. Now, my responsibility, Pastor Mark's responsibility, Pastor Dean's responsibility, uh, those that God has raised up here to give the gift of teaching, to teach, our responsibility, specifically us as pastors, is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Yes, we begin by feeding you. But just like you who had, had babies or have babies, you, you start off and they should desire the milk of the Word. I've never seen a baby <laughs> yet that, uh, well, I take that back. Uh, I have seen babies that don't desire the milk of the word, that don't desire milk. By the way, when a baby wants milk, what do you usually hear, mamas? Yeah, thank you. That was pretty good. That, that's not a very hungry baby. <laughs> I don't know who's having that baby. Y'all been giving them NyQuil in the bottle. I Stop that stuff. No, man, that baby go crazy. Screaming, screaming, screaming. And look, that's a good thing. That's a beautiful sound because it lets me know, hey, the child's hungry. Right? But what about a baby that doesn't scream? Some of you work in the NICU. I know um, uh, 
Kelsey has and others have been around babies, and, and they can or they don't because they're not healthy. I think a lot of us as believers, we've lost our appetite for the Word of God and we're feeding on other things. Or At the end of the day, it's, we're sick. We're sickly. And if we're not careful, guys, we will live the rest of our lives as believers never feeding on the Word of God. And that's what's been given to you and me so we can grow spiritually. Because my desire is to not, it's just to move from the bottle, you know, ah, uh, to, to, the, to the spoon, to eventually, you know, cutting up your steak for you. And eventually, hey, you, you, you cook your own steak, right? That's what, anyway. So we got a responsibility to do this. And, and us as pastors have a responsibility to feed you these truths. But proving inspiration. We also want to look at the uniqueness of the scriptures. Now think about Scripture for a moment. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. All right? It's, not, it's, it's 66 different books in a canon, in one. It's not, not a canon shootout like that, but it's, a, it, it's, it's closed in this sense. Listen to this. It's made up of different genres. Okay? There's Hebrew poetry. There is uh, historical uh, narrative. There's... Uh, epistles, there's you know, letters, there's apocalyptic literature. There's different genres. We know this. We understand this. And that is important to understand in how to read the Scriptures. You need to realize, though, that genres is, a, is a, something invented by the wisdom of man, right? Not, not necessarily a bad thing, but we've got to be careful with these things. There's been some great discussion uh, recently in our Wednesday night, as well as in Dr. Carver's class, there's a new genre that's being introduced because it was discovered. And so therefore, this idea of mytho-history is somehow now why the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not to be believed because it's mytho-history. But in chapter 12, it now becomes history. It's dangerous, guys. It's very deadly dangerous. Now, there's evidence as to why that's a faulty claim. But you're not going to know that if you only drink from one cistern. We need to examine this in light of Scripture. Jesus quoted in the beginning. You've heard it said, in the beginning. Jesus believed it. Paul, Peter, they quote these things as well. They believed it. I don't see any, anything mentioning there of a certain type of genre. We've got to be careful on these things. But the Bible is 66 books. It's made up of different genres. It's written by more than 40 different uh, authors from all walks of life. Fishermen, kings, physicians, shepherds, tax collectors, etc. On three different continents, in three languages, over 1,500 years. It's written in Aramaic, right? Hebrew, Greek. And in, in over 1,500, 1,600 years, all writing to different circumstances and dealing with different issues. But you know what's amazing about it? It's one collective story. There's a common thread of grace from the very beginning, in the beginning God, to the last verse of Revelation. No man could do that. No man could take this and put it together in such a way. By the way, a good study, and maybe we'll do it at some point. We've looked at it in the past, but I always forget. Some of you guys haven't been here the last 12 years, right? Um, but 
But we've looked at, again, how the canon was formed. Why 66 books? Why not what, like the Catholics with the Apocrypha? Well, again, there, there's, there's answers to this. A lot of these things are the main one, simple one, and, and there's a lot more to it, but the simple answer is the early church, the early believers, they, they knew, they embraced what was the authoritative word of God. And they rejected those writings that were trying to make their way in that were falsified, uh, some that weren't inspired of God. They may have been letters of accommodation or there may have been other things, but they did not have that stamp of approval of thus saith the Lord. And there's again, there's, there's, there's reasons for that. That's a good study. But it wasn't because we met in a council in, in 8300 and something and decided, yep, this one's in. Oh, that one's no good. Let's put it out. Yep, that one's in. That's not how it worked. Just like the world, all right, when uh, Columbus set sail, didn't make the world round. He sailed the world, therefore he made it round. No, he discovered the truth that was already there. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference. We don't create truth. Truth is discovered. So these guys didn't say, hey, let's put this in the books. Uh -uh. They discovered what was already accepted as truth. So here's some history on the uniqueness of it. It's a unique book. There's no book like it. You can at least acknowledge that, right? Even if you're a, scoff, a scoffer or a skeptic, you can at least acknowledge there's no other book like this. Well, what about this? Uh, continuing on. It has been translated into more languages than any other document book or writing because of its claim for divine inspiration, its message, and its unparalleled popularity. The Bible has also been attacked more than any other piece of literature, despite these attacks, the Bible remains the authoritative book for more than two billion professing Christians and the best-selling book of all time. It's a unique book. I mean, even a, a, an atheist you can have this conversation with, right? And you should. It's a unique book. What else? It's historicity. Let's look at some of its historicity. We're going to look at its internal evidence, and we're going to look at its external evidence. The internal evidence, evidence coming from within the Scripture. Okay? We're going to look at some more of that. But then we're also going to look at some of the external evidence, evidence coming from outside the Scriptures. Because, again, it's not just believers, right, attesting to what the book says. There's extra outside sources that verify our claim of inspiration. All right, so let's, we'll look at some of those. Uh, internal evidence. Honesty. All right? That's more than just a Billy Joel song. That's a good karaoke. I want you to do that before me here sometime. Honesty. Anyway, all right, then we got harmony, which, girls, you can join Eric and do harmony. That's a different one. It's, it, but, but the book has harmony. It, it goes together. Again, we talked about from Genesis to Revelation. It fits. The Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they fit together. There's harmony in this. How is that even possible? We can't even agree on the color of the carpet. <laughs> it must be supernatural. Extraordinary claims and lack of motivation for fabrication. That's what we're going to look at. These are some of the things we're going to talk about. Because uh, there are some extraordinary claims. And there's some miracles in this book, right? We'll talk about that. We're going to look at some of the lack of motivation for fabrication. In other words, you know, you, you think this book's fabricated? <laughs> I don't think so. 
We're going to look at that. We're going to talk about it. So uh, we're not going to go too much further because we've got Lord's table today. So we're going to try to move forward here. Um, let's look at honesty. The Bible records both success and failures of the heroes. By the way, let me just highlight right here. I said this last week. You and I aren't the heroes. Even those on the pages, I kind of, I, I don't necessarily like this statement because we're not the heroes of the book. Who's the hero of the book? Jesus Christ. There's only one hero. This book's about him. Therefore, our life should be about him. This story being written ain't about you, and it ain't about me. It's bigger than us. And we would do well to be on his page, right? So with that little said, but it, it, it does show their failures, right? These guys and gals that we're reading on the pages, and it highlights their failures. If you're making this book up and you're the one writing it, you're probably not going to do that, you know? It never paints the glorious picture that we would expect from legendary material, but shows them all in their worst moments. The Israelites whined. David murdered. Peter denied. The apostles abandoned Christ in fear. Moses became angry. Jacob deceived. Noah got drunk. Adam and Eve disobeyed. Paul persecuted, maybe even murdered. And it's a very honest book. Continuing on, Solomon worshipped idols. Abraham was a bigamist. Lot committed incest. Yet the New Testament says he was a righteous man. John the Baptist doubted. Abraham doubted. Sarah doubted. We all doubted. <laughs> Nicodemus doubted. Thomas doubted. Jonah ran. <laughs> Samson self-served. John worshipped an angel. In addition, the most faithful are seen as suffering the most. Job and Lazarus. So who wants to sign up to be faithful today? That's, that ought to be the invitations in our churches. All right? If you guys really want to suffer a lot in this world, you want to have people hate you for no reason. You want to be persecuted. You want to get sickness and disease. And, and you, want to, you want to just have a miserable life. Won't you come forward today and serve the Lord wholeheartedly? You don't hear that invitation, do you? And by the way, we live in a fallen world and fallen things happen to all people, right? It rains on the just and the unjust. And again, I was reminded of, a, of some abusive teachings uh, this past week. And, and guys, let me just say, biblical Christianity is not represented by those who misinterpret and misimply the Word of God. Shame on them. I look at Ravi Zacharias, a man who was at one point a great champion for the faith. But if the accusations about him are true, and they seem to be, if they're true, that doesn't change the truth he represented, but shame on him. And there'll be an account for that. But when we look at the pages of Scripture, we see men and women who are fallen and restored. We see some who fall in their sin and 
this is part of the story, is it not? But that doesn't change the necessity to be faithful, to understand the Word of God and to stand firm on the authority of God's Word. Not allowing our experiences or our circumstances to shape our worldview to the problems and the circumstances. Again, doesn't justify the wrongdoings, but it should strengthen us to, again, embrace the authority of God's Word in the, in the understanding of the truth of God's Word. So we see, in addition, the most faithful are seen as suffering the most. Job, Lazarus, while the wicked are seen as prospering. The rich man on earth, right? I mean, but again, keep reading. And the story of the rich man seemed to have a lot, but what does the final chapter reveal? Guys, can I encourage you this morning? Are stories still being written? And there go I, except for the grace of God. There go you, except for the grace of God. None of us have arrived, but it's not an excuse to ignore the authority of God's Word in our life and over our life. And if you want to live a life that's well-pleasing in the sight of God, then we must start with the foundation of the Word of God. It's honest. It's honest truth. A.W. Pink said this, A forged history would have clothed friends with every virtue and would not have ventured to mar the effect designed to be produced by uncovering the vices of its most distinguished personages. Here there is displayed the uniqueness of Scripture history. Its characters are painted in the colors of truth and nature, but such characters were never sketched by a human pencil. Moses and the other writers must have written by divine inspiration. He's right. And that's what's in the book that you carry that's called the Word of God. The Bible also contains irrelevant details that you would not expect from an embellishment of history. Again, if this is a made-up book, if this is a man-made book, if it's written by men, you wouldn't put these things in here. You wouldn't. For example, check this out. John 20, 1 through 8. You can turn there. John 20, 1 through 8. I'm going to put it up on the screen with a little uh, commentary with it, just for fun. Just to prove this point of how, if this was... You know, you're not going to embellish this. So let's just look at some of the meaningless things that seem to be in there. Early on the first day of the week. When? Does it matter? Well, it does as New Testament believers, right? Continuing on. While it was still dark, who cares? You know, some people may ask, these, are, these might be honest, who cares? But again, all of this is authenticating the very Word of God. There's reasons. It's important. Mary Magdalene, an uh, incriminating detail. <laughs> What's that gal doing there? <laughs> you know, again, it's honest. It's straightforward. I went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Let's continue. So she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one who Jesus loved John's modest way of referring to himself, right? I mean, think about who's writing this. John's writing this. The one whom Jesus loved, by the way. I don't know if he said it that way, but he felt that way, right? I mean, another mark of genuineness. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've taken him. Note her lack of faith here. 
So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Continuing on. They were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Jesus' modesty again. Who was he racing? He was racing John. Right? Okay. The other disciple outran Peter. Okay, and reached the tomb first. John's modesty again. But who cares about this irrelevant detail? He bent over. The tomb entrance was low. A detail which is historically accurate of wealthy people of the time. So again, all these things are in here for reason and purpose. It's not just willy-nilly. We're raising these facetious questions because a lot of times people will raise these kind of facetious questions, but yet they, uh, it's not typical information you would put in, right? If it's human in writing, but if it's divine in writing. So we continue. The kind we know Jesus was buried in. This is the type of tomb, right? Rich man buried. We know how, again, it was a borrowed tomb from a rich man, fulfilling a prophecy, which we'll look at another time. And looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Why not? Why does it, it's irrelevant detail, it seems. Why, why didn't he go in? Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, modest repetition again. He's letting you know, hey, I outran Mark Stugelmeyer. That's, that's, that's Pastor Jeremy. I outran Mark Stugelmeyer. By the way, just in case you didn't know, I outran. Uh, we got on tape, don't we? Anyway, and Barnett. We'll to go ahead and clue you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's that modesty again, right? So, Simon Peter, who was behind him, modest repetition again, arrived and went into the tomb. Peter's boldness stands out in all the gospel accounts. These aren't meaningless details, but yet they seem to be. Continuing on. He saw the strips of uh, linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Irrelevant and unexpected, and, uh, unexpected detail. What, what was Jesus wearing? The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Could anything be more irrelevant and more unusual than this? Jesus folded the laundry. I mean, what? Jesus folded one part of his wrapping before he left. I think it lets us know he does things decent and in order. <laughs> Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. Who cares about what exact order they went in? Again, those may seem like Minor details. And if man were writing the story and it's not divinely inspired, that may be true. But we know it's divinely inspired. Here's the takeaway. We're going to close up for right now. Man is hopelessly sinful. The primary hero is murdered by man. I mean, think about this. This is what's in the story. Nobody ever understands what is going on in God's plan, which leaves no motive for any proposed embellishment. Only through progressive revelation does the reader understand the full message. And isn't that true to our life? Sometimes you say, what is going on in this situation? Why is this happening to me? What's happening? Read the pages of Scripture. This isn't anything new. God's writing your story. Women are the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection. Oh man, that's scandalous in the time in which Christ was there, right? You wouldn't choose that if you're writing to the early, uh, that, that, those first couple of centuries. You definitely wouldn't put that detail in there. 
but God did. Amen? Man would not create the tension of predestination and human responsibility, the Trinity, the hypostatic union, etc., etc. I mean, there's a lot of things in here. Many texts contain inherent ambiguities, uh, like the meaning of baptism for the dead. What, what's that about? 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Keys to the kingdom of heaven. What, what's that mean? Matthew 6, 9. And the seed of the woman, Genesis 3, 15. Again, these are things that have meaning. Man's not coming up with these concepts. This book is divine in nature. The Gospels present a consistent portrait of who Jesus is and what he did, as well as of the events which surrounded his life. If the four accounts were individually fabricated, where did this consistency come from? But there are also significant differences in each account showing the relative differences of their perspectives. If they were all fabricated together, the consistency would be greater than we find. Gregory Boyd, Letters from a Skeptic. Even an unbelieving world, when they weigh some of this evidence, has to note there's something unique about this book. There's something honest about this book. I may not like it, if I'm a skeptic scoffer, I may not even like it if I'm a seeker. But it's true. And therefore, it's authoritative and it's to be obeyed. And you and I would do well to submit our life to it and trust the Lord, especially when we don't understand the story that's being written with the seemingly meaningless details from time to time. God is faithful. And He's writing our story. His story. Because it's about Him. Let your life, may my life and our life as a church family, continue to be a life that points others to Christ because we're standing on the authority of God's Word. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that truth claims can be weighed. It's not something that we just have to take on the surface, but yet at the same time, Lord, whether we do or don't, you're still God. Whether I choose to believe or choose to reject doesn't change the truth. And so, Lord, as your people, may we look to you with new eyes. May we look with you, look to you with, with eyes upon eternity. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Until we see your face, Lord. Until we see your face. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do uh, the Lord's table at this time, and so I am going to ask that our deacons would come forward, and Tammy's going to play, and let's just kind of prepare our hearts. By the way, if you are a believer in Christ, the table's open to you. If you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, we would ask that you would simply observe. Um, we would also ask that if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, that you would do some self-examination.
scriptures warn us and talk to us about the importance of confessing our sin uh, to if there's anything that, that needs to be laid before the Lord, that this would be the time to do that. And so um, if not, we would ask that you would, again, uh, refrain from taking of the Lord's table until your heart is right. But we would implore you, get your heart right. God loves you. He demonstrated that love on the cross of Calvary. He makes a promise to you and me, if anyone will confess their sin, he is faithful, he's just. And He'll forgive you of your sin. And He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Lance, the deacons, if they would, please come at this time. And let's prepare our hearts.
Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Pastor Mark to thank the Lord for the body. Father, we rejoice Lord sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. God, we are grieved by the suffering and pain that he through for us. God, as we think about the nails, the process of crucifixion, eating, crown that was placed upon his head. God grieved because of that, we're all thankful. We're thankful, Lord, that he was punished in our place. God, we praise you for that. We praise you for the broken body of Christ. God, we are also thankful for the loss of the body broken. God, it rose that third. Thank you. Praise you. This represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for us. Take, eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And I ask Pastor Dean, if he would, thank the Lord for the cup. Father, when we think of the cup, it reminds us of the blood of Christ. Realizing that the blood of Christ cleanses us, as John writes, from all sin. I will praise you for that. Not one sin any Christian here ever committed, brought against ever. Because Jesus took all these sins in We rejoice that we have such a Savior. We're thankful that even now that we can know how to assurance of Christ. Just reading that one text this morning. They're written in God's Bible. It said it's all about Christ. So thank you for that. Thank you for this church that God let us take humble heart, even this hour in Christ is now. Amen. Cup represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for our sins. Take and drink. The Bible says that after that they sang a hymn and went out. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Randall if he would please lead us in a closing hymn and you are dismissed. Please stand.